Hey folks, thanks for joining us again. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't offer too much in terms of extras to folks for donating. That seems to go against our mentality. Knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes and keep y'all in the loop. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. If this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. That said, we're taking a pivot in direction due to the upcoming election, and we're starting to think more about collapse sooner than later. I don't think anyone would disagree the upcoming election will probably be the most pivotal in our lives, and if you're a Patreon subscriber, you might have heard our thoughts on what's coming up next. There's a few things I want to talk about when it comes to prepping in a traditional sense of the word. Everyone is familiar with the image of the crazy prepper convinced the government is looking for any excuse to crack down and make it so that people starve to death, for whatever reason, and that society is going to collapse. There will be death in the streets, and only the strong will survive. Chances are, at this point, you figured out that is the opposite of what we're about here at the Poor Pearls Almanac. Instead, we're focused on highlighting the goodness in people and community, and how if and when the time comes for that collapse, we are ready to heal with our neighbors, not arm up against them. Believing in the goodness of your community doesn't mean we are not prepared. And part of preparing is preparing to take care of yourself first. There's a reason why airlines tell you to put your mask on before you help others. You can't be helpful without having a strong framework to help them. That's what this podcast is all about, having a strong framework to deal with what may happen, whether it's directly after this upcoming election or a decade later. Exponential growth can't continue forever, so the question is not an if, but a when. And when that time comes, we'll be ready. This episode is the start of a mini-series that at this point doesn't have a title. If you're listening to it, we've decided one. Currently, the main focus of the podcast is around using nature to rebuild more sustainable societies, and we've started a mini-series focused on the other aspects of societies, urban spaces, self-defense, mutual aid, defining work, among other subjects that will be covered in it. This episode is the start of yet another mini-series focused on functional skills. While this episode is focused on basic prepping, we will do more advanced preps, bug out bags, emergency first aid, and wilderness survival, as well as much more. While you won't be able to do all these things just from listening to the podcast, much like the other subject areas, it lets you know what you don't know, and that's where you can start doing your research. By building out these various mini-series, we can keep some flow to the show, and if you have specific interests or areas you feel stronger in, you'll be able to jump around to follow the content you feel like listening to at the time. 
There's some other stuff in the works as well, and we'll get you guys in the loop as we firm up some of those details. Which brings me to a really important, albeit obvious, point. Prepping is hard. Not just because there's no classes for it, and you're really preparing for something you don't know exactly what it will be, but because it's all-encompassing. Everything from electricity to food and water to self-defense and medicine. It's all in there. It's overwhelming. You always see these folks that get overwhelmed with society and they say, I'm going to go live off the grid and I'm going to be self-sustainable. And at the end of the day, as a species, we're not made to do that. Nobody can do everything. But the challenge now is that we don't know what we're going to have to do when that time comes. So what do you do? My first suggestion is to start small. So we're going to start small here. My goal is to cover the major areas, talk about how to plan what you want to do and are capable of doing, and give you a framework to build from. Further, we're going to cover $150 prep so that you have food, water, and all of the things you need in your house for up to 30 days. It's very, very easy to prep and only spend 100 bucks or so and be in a better place than 99% of people. And it's just as easy to think if you haven't spent thousands of dollars, you're ill-prepared. So let's start talking about food, or more specifically, food storage. Now, I had initially wanted to work our way through content, from global warming down to food systems, creating closed-loop food systems in local ways through individual homestead methods for short-term survival, and ultimately, agrihood models to create sustainable suburbs and to support megacities, which, frankly, are so ill-equipped for supply chain disruptions, it's absolutely frightening. But we're going to put that on hold for a minute and talk about storing food. There's an absolute, and I cannot stress this enough, shitload of garbage when it comes to food storage for preppers. I mean, I don't think it's absolutely useless, but the information given is not useful to me because it works in a gray area. And let's be honest, when we're talking about something like having enough food, there's not a lot of gray area. Either you have enough or you don't. And I get that might seem weird to you. How can you know? I'm not saying you can, but generally, most of my thought process works backwards. I start with where I want to be and work my way back using concrete data to figure out how I get there. Further, I don't eat a lot of canned or dried foods, and there are probably zero dried foods I eat on a weekly basis. We have gardens and trees and a large freezer, so there's really no need for us to consume lesser quality version of the products we enjoy. So when I hear a lot of preppers talking about rotating cans in and out, that doesn't work for me. The idea behind rotating cans is that you store the most recent purchases in the back of your rows of, say, black beans, so you're always eating the oldest can. But if you're not eating any of it, then it doesn't rotate. There's a large assumption in the prepper community about canned goods that you're already consuming them in a decent quantity, and if you're not, you're looking at an extra large expense. So that brings me back to my whole point, that I think a lot of the advice on prepping can be difficult to translate for folks. It can be overwhelming. 
if you go on YouTube and try to watch videos about prepping, there are constantly these list videos that say 10 things you need to prep, 10 things that'll keep your family safe. All these different lists, and 90% of them line up, so you'd think that means they're all good. However, a lot of it isn't really helpful. Telling me the best shotgun to have if I've never shot a gun doesn't do me any good. Further, you don't want to be that guy who buys three cans you don't want to be that guy who buys three cases of canned corn, beans, and whatever else you think you might eat when you're at the grocery store. Additionally, if you're not used to eating processed canned food like myself, the idea of trying to make that a staple of your pantry seems vomit-inducing. Every time I walk down the aisle and see canned asparagus, I get a tickle in the back of my throat. First off, we should cover what kind of goods you want to be storing, Again, let's reverse plan this. You have a matrix of things that you need a lot of, things that are hard to get, and things that are expensive. Navigating this can be tricky. For example, ammo is important to a lot of people, not just for self-defense or hunting, but as a tradable good that doesn't really go bad as long as you don't totally screw up storing it. If you're looking to pick up some, say, 308 ammo, for example, Around these parts, they're about a dollar a round, so a few boxes add up pretty quickly. A 500 round case of 22 long range, however, should keep you in good shape for a year, even if you're shooting fairly often, and might run you $25 and only fill up a half a square foot of shelf space. Water, on the other hand, is pretty cheap and can be easy to get. Stores don't usually sell out of water unless there's a major event at which point it's not a great time to be buying stuff. Further, we have sinks. Not saying don't store water, but think about your access to it. Do you need a well to access that water? And if so, how reliable is the electrical system that powers that pump? If you get it from the town, for the short term, you're probably fine. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably noticed in the first couple episodes, as I did those fiction pieces, one of the things I brought up was the quality of water going down, but still accessible. That's probably more realistic, and we're going to do an episode on what systems will fail first if there ever were to be a collapse. Additionally, pay attention to your day. When you wake up, is the heat on? Do you always have the AC on? Where's that power coming from? Do you have solar panels? Your breakfast, what do you eat? How do you cook it? Does it require refrigeration? Your goal isn't to be prepared to replace these things so that your life doesn't change should either a storm roll through or martial law gets enacted and the grid starts to fail, but rather to start being more aware of the decisions you make in your everyday life that you need to account for or adjust. Everyone has lost power at some point, but the goal of prepping is for when a couple of hours turn into weeks or maybe months that you're prepared. And a key component of prepping from a leftist perspective is the role of community. But you can't help others until you help yourself first, and that's why we're doing this. In terms of food, there are generally nine types of traditional food storage. Canning, drying, freezing, confits, fermenting, pickling, curing, sugaring, and cold storing foods. There are newer methods like vacuum sealing, which is fine, but
but I don't really find it helpful to rely on odd technologies when it comes to food. Additionally, each of these types of storage techniques deserve their own episode, and we'll probably get there at some point, but assuming you're just looking to purchase, the only recommendation I can make is to try eating these types of stored foods if you haven't before. I tend to lean towards drying, sugaring, like jellies, curing, and cold storing because they don't rely on those industrial-based resources if I have to add to my resources. Plus, who doesn't like jam? So let's talk about this idea of reverse planning, and then I want to bring up some framework to understand what we're prepping for. When we plan to make, say, beans and rice, how much rice goes into it? How many calories are in it? How much protein? And how much water goes into cooking and cleaning that food? We have to start here if we want to appropriately plan and store a useful amount of food. The general rule for water, for example, is a gallon a day. Does that include washing your hands, cooking, cleaning your dishes and cookware? So it doesn't do you any good if you have a case of black beans and no water to rinse them, and you've run out of rice, right? You can technically eat it. By the eighth can, you'll probably want to die anyway. While this might seem like common sense, you usually won't hear this advice too often in prepper groups. You'll get folks that will bring up these issues, but because most people have never actually had to live through this experience, some of those subtle issues that come up from poor planning are never actually experienced. So what should you do? Try buying some various canned goods after doing some reading and try making a few dishes. Pay attention to how much of each ingredient you use and how much it takes to make roughly 600 calories a meal and about 15 grams of protein, or whatever caloric content you're focused on. How much water did you use to clean and cook? Check the protein content. Chances are, in a survival situation, other nutrients aren't a main priority, but protein deficiency will become more of a problem. When you're short on protein, you are hungrier and you will go through your food stash more quickly. Calculate everything out for the recipe and then try making like five or so other recipes to mix things up. Once you've got a few recipe options, write them down and write down how much of a can you use for each recipe, as well as the amount of water to clean your canned goods or to rehydrate food or to clean your cookware. Keep all of this data with your stored goods as well as a simple chart for you to track how many of each food you have and what that expiration date is. Excel is a great tool for you to use, and you can print off updated lists, even seasonally, just to keep on track with what you've got, and even build some simple models to keep track of how many meals, calories, and so on you've got stored away. As an accountant, I find having the numbers in front of me comforting, so it might help you as well. So now you've got a basic understanding of how to appropriately calculate how much food you need and what kinds of food you need. Again, let's start at the end. What's your end goal? What are you most afraid of, realistically, in terms of needing the storage for? Maybe you've been having worse storms and you lose power more and more frequently and want a week's worth of food. Maybe you're afraid of what's happening in politics and aren't sure how long our food chain system will hold up. Maybe you just get laid off a lot because of the nature of your work 
and you're afraid that inflation will raise prices in the future when you're out of work and you won't be able to afford food at that time. Everyone's situation is different. Let's just say you want three months of food for you. And who else? Spouse? Girlfriend? Boyfriend? Kids? Parents? Grandparents? If there's six of you, for example, three months of food is 1,620 meals. Holy shit, right? Okay, well, we're not going to try to get enough food for three months right away. We'll try to focus on a few days, maybe a week. Work your way up. But if you have a hard goal, say, three months, check out how many cans of corn, bags of rice, whatever it might be, that will get you there. Take a look at your storage space. Is that realistic to store that amount? Here in New England, everyone has basements, and you can dedicate a couple hundred square feet to shelves if you want. That's not the case for everywhere. If there's no possible way to store, that doesn't mean don't start, but you might want to start thinking about a couple of other options in the future. The meal ready to eat, commonly known as the MRE, is a self-contained individual field ration and lightweight packaging bought by the United States Department of Defense for its service members for use in combat or other field conditions where organized food facilities are not available. You can buy a 5-gallon bucket with 100 days meals if you want. They're not cheap, averaging around $7 per meal, and even more when folks are worried about the future, like now. Writing this episode in August of 2020, the current price for an MRE on Amazon is running around $8.50. Never mind gold as an indicator of economic security, MREs are probably a better measure. The perks of MREs are that they are usually high-protein, high-calorie, last longer than canned goods, often well over a decade, although you can find videos of people eating foods that are over 100 years old on YouTube, and you usually can buy it and store it. Nothing else needs to be done. Canned goods usually have a shelf life of a few years, whereas home-jarred, sugared, and jellied foods will last up to a year depending on what the food is and where the food is stored. Dehydrated and smoked meats and fish, as well as confits, are good for months. Dried beans, the outlier, can last decades in the right conditions. The common theme here, as you might have noticed by now, is that storage for goods is based on the right conditions. However, those conditions are not the same across the board, which can make storage a challenge. The general rule is that we want to keep foods in stasis. Dried foods need to stay dry as possible, while foods whose moisture is still trapped inside need to keep that moisture trapped inside as long as possible, without too much external moisture. Canned foods should be stored with dried foods because you don't want your tin can to start to rust, and you want to store your ammo in the same conditions. In an ideal world, you'd have room for, or already have, a root cellar. All a root cellar is, really, is an extremely cool, moist room. Depending on what you're storing, you might require some airflow. I'm not going to do much more of a dive into root cellars right now, since this has been a personal pet project of mine for research, and it's a much more complex subject area than I can cover in a few paragraphs but I want to cover some of these basics and dedicate a whole episode to root cellars in the future. The release of ethylene 
is the key to identifying whether or not your root cellar needs airflow because ethylene is the reason why you store unripe foods with your bananas. It's a chemical that certain fruits and vegetables give off that accelerate the ripening process. Tomatoes, apples, oranges, and pears are the largest contributors of ethylene in your root cellar and will cause everything to rot quickly if not ventilated properly. If you don't have the time, space, or money for whatever you might use for your root cellar, then stay away from storing these particular foods. The general goal, as I said, is to keep foods as cool as possible for the most part. And again, if it is a dry food, keep it dry and moist foods want to be kept moist. Now, a root cellar can be as simple or as complicated as you want it. It doesn't have to be a literal cellar. It can be an old storage tote or garbage can buried in the ground with the lid exposed. You can use wood crates with dirt and keep your root vegetables in it so they don't dry out and go bad. Like I said, the whole root cellar concept is complex and I really want to spend the time to unpack the subject and how it can interplay with community building and how accessible it can be based on various levels of both space and time investment. When we talk about water storage, most folks know it makes sense, but it seems silly to store water because you need so much of it and it's so cheap. The rule of thumb, like I said, is a gallon a day per person. Keep in mind, even if you aren't drinking a gallon a day, you want water to wash your hands, your skin, your foods, and so on, and so on. Your first thought might be to buy an extra one gallon jug every time you're at the store. And I'm not going to say outright that it's a bad idea, because it's better than no plan at all. But I will say in my experience, every jug of water I've bought for storage and put in my basement has lasted at most a few years before it sprung a leak. That might be due to the conditions in my basement. But if that's where you're going to store your water long term, then that's just not going to cut it. There are larger containers you can buy online that are made of heavy-duty plastics like the jugs you see on the backs of Jeeps and any generic off-roading picture you see on the internet. You can get from 1 gallon up to 25 gallon, as well as various IBC-type tote containers that people usually use on farms that can hold around 275 gallons of water. But that's probably not going in your basement. The smaller containers usually run around $2 a gallon, so a 25-gallon container will run you about $50 and will give you water for about a month. Again, if we're thinking about that three-month storage for six people, you'd need 540 gallons, and that's a lot of water. That said, the larger IBC totes run around $0.80 cents per gallon, so they are much more cost-effective than buying five-gallon water totes at a time. If the area you live has fairly frequent rain, or if you live somewhere near mostly clean, fresh water, a couple packs of life straws or iodine tablets might be a better option for you. If you have spent time hiking, you're probably familiar with both of these products. Most recently, life straws. They're about the size of a half liter water bottle and are literally a straw with a filter attached that you can stick into any water and drink. For folks in temperate climates, this is all you need to filter up to 100,000 gallons of water, or so they say. Since I only go hiking and kayaking about 20 times a year, and only rarely long enough where I might need to use this, 
I should only need to buy one for the rest of my life at around 20 bucks. If you're in warmer climates, and I don't mean like Washington, D.C., but tropical climates, this might be a challenge because it does not filter out viruses. Further, it doesn't filter out heavy metals, so try to be aware of the health of local water sources. Here in the United States, for the most part, that really shouldn't be a problem. At the end of the day, it takes up a fraction of the space of gallons and gallons of water, and is cheaper too. We have four stored away, enough for our whole family to have enough water, theoretically, indefinitely, without taking up too much space, and only $80. Additionally, iodine tablets are another traditional way of making water drinkable. Most setups require using two steps of tablets and then waiting for the chemicals to do their thing for a half hour, which is an extra step, but a medicine bottle worth of tablets will get you through 100 or so gallons of water at about a dollar a gallon. The last comment I want to make about water. It might sound like a good idea to set up a water catchment system from your roof, which is a great idea, but not for drinking water. Use that water for your garden, but not for drinking water. The chemicals used in almost all roofing materials are extremely dangerous in consumption, and most filtration systems will not adequately clean that water. Okay, so we have covered food and water, which is super important, obviously, in terms of prepping. We also talked a bit about ammo. Cool. Hopefully, in a worst case scenario, you've got food, water, the ability to defend yourself, and the ability to gift. As leftists, we aren't actually interested in trading, but mutual aid. The flip side to food and water to keep you healthy, we need to talk about the opposite end of that, sanitation. There's plenty that can be said about the great toilet paper run of 2020, but TP isn't the only piece of sanitation we need to consider. Besides, like, use leaves. When we hear people talk about societal collapse, we imagine a world without rules, a world where basic access to things becomes limited, but we don't think about how dangerous many common ailments we have can become deadly. If our sanitation systems are no longer functioning, we have to start thinking about how to keep our food and living spaces clean so we don't go the way of the Oregon Trail and die of dysentery or typhoid fever. We could span a whole mini-series on sanitation, and I'm probably not qualified to go into intensive detail on that subject, but what we want to do, as totally normal people that are not preparing for Mad Max, is to maintain a basic supply of soap, one bar per week per person, and to have a dedicated poop shovel. Sorry, if there's no running water, you're going to want a poop shovel. It's important to store goods that are not perishable but necessary. Things like floss, toothbrushes, and other cleaning products that keep us from allowing dangerous diseases to take hold. And this brings me to medical supplies and first aid. Hopefully, you are familiar with first aid kits. I hope you have at least a couple in your house. You can build one yourself, if you'd like, but the money savings isn't worth it for a basic kit. Now, keep in mind... 99% of first aid kits on the market are not designed for situations where you also need to see an actual medical professional. They're for minor cuts, scrapes, and so on. 
Further, don't buy equipment just because people say you should have it. Equipment without knowledge is wasted money or worse. Not too long ago, a clip was floating around from the Portland protests where a man had gotten some shrapnel in his leg. It was a scrape, a deep scrape, but a scrape. He probably needed stitches, but it wasn't life or death. As someone who has fallen doing stupid things more than a few times in my life in the woods and probably needed stitches more times than I've gotten them, it sucks, but with some basic common sense, it's not that big of a deal. This particular medic attempted to tourniquet the wound, which could have had dire consequences. Fortunately, he didn't actually have a tourniquet, and he wasn't good at making one, and it wasn't nearly tight enough, but could still have caused some damage if left without professional help. The medic did more damage than good. If he had had a cat tourniquet instead of a bandana, the guy probably would have lost his leg for literally no reason. Tools without education are weapons. So, what should you have on hand? Again, start where you're comfortable. I recommend something good for wound packing. There are multiple quick clot wound packing kits that run for about $25 and very possibly can be the difference between life or death in serious injuries. Outside of wound packing, the most valuable thing for your medical prep is knowledge. There are some really great resources out there for basic first aid, and I recommend taking an emergency first aid training course. Further, if you go online, there's lots of those free classes like Coursera and some others that are out there, and some of them will give you a seven-day free trial if they're not free, and they always offer things like EMT, emergency preparedness, things like that. Those are really great classes to take, and it's a good way to at least get some basic knowledge. Additionally, with all the protests going on, online emergency responder courses are popping up for free for folks that wanted to go and help protesters as medics. These are generally run by various mutual aid groups, so support your local mutual aid group because they're amazing. That said, not everyone paid attention, as evidenced by our tourniquet guy, but they are some really great resources, specifically Mutual Aid Disaster Relief posts a ton of content on their Instagram. Lastly, if you take medication, it's important to store some of that away and cycle in that medication the way we had discussed with canned goods to keep them fresh and safe. Now I'm looking over and I'm realizing I'm already through a bunch of the time I wanted to spend on this brief coverage of basics and prepping, so I'm going to try to go through some more content on a very topical level. And then I want to give you an example of a basic cheat prep. So let's talk about news and communication. For most folks, a radio with a solar panel built on top and a hand crank is all you need. There's a bunch of them online and you can get them for between $20 and $30. And I highly recommend having one on hand. Usually they'll also have a USB port to plug in a phone to charge. For those that are more interested in communications, Ham Radio is a great place to learn more, and it's an area I'm underskilled, so I will leave that to Elliot to discuss in a further episode. In a different direction, let's talk about bug out bags for a quick second. Bug out bags are the ultimate prepper symbol. A small bag packed with expensive, portable things to live off of for days at a time. While there is a place and a time for bug out bags, 
I don't think they really merit a lot of discussion in terms of long-term preparedness, or at least in the way we're thinking about it. I have a hiking-slash-fishing-slash-bug-out bag that I keep in my garage. It has enough prepackaged food for a few days, some basic fishing equipment, a few rounds of different types of ammo, a life straw, iodine tablets, extra socks, a small solar charger, first aid stuff, a space blanket, a water bladder, matches, a headlamp, a multi-tool, a cup that I can put over a fire, paracord, duct tape, and some cash. The bag, even with my fishing gear in it, is maybe three quarters full, and in an emergency situation, I can dump my fishing gear, which is most of the weight. The equipment, minus the fishing gear, which makes for a good starter bug out bag, runs about $80 plus another $60 for the bag. And unlike a dedicated bug out bag, I'm familiar with the equipment in the bag, know where it is quickly, and it doesn't feel like wasted money because I use it almost weekly for nine months of the year. I also don't spend much time outdoors in the coldest parts of the winter because I hate the cold, so concerns about having heavy, bulky winter gear is not a concern, greatly lightening my pack. The question really comes down to is if you think bugging out is a feasible option for you. In my case, it really doesn't make any sense. I have two small kids. They're not about to be trekking miles through the woods to hide from, well, something, I guess, in this scenario. Further, we already live in a rural area, and while we live near the coast, not close enough to worry about massive storms. Your situation might be different. If you're in the city, a bug out bag makes more sense. If you're active in leftist political circles and activism, a bug out bag makes sense. Everyone's situation is different. My recommendation is to keep in mind your needs as you build it out. And we will do an episode later on digging deeper into this subject area. How can you provide food, water, heat or cooling, self-defense, tradable goods, and the tools you need to manipulate your environment to stay safe, healthy, and capable of getting where you need to go? That's the goal of your bag. And the flip side to that is having somewhere you are going. And again, know how to use the tools you're buying. Unfortunately, the society we live in has gotten people to think they can buy their way to security. And in reality, somebody with a few tools that they know very well is much better off than somebody with a bunch of expensive tools they don't know how to use. We can buy tons and tons of expensive, savvy, lightweight gear that can do everything we could ever imagine relying on that is not a long-term solution. Being able to use it and to accommodate when it doesn't work is imperative to being successful and surviving, whether you're in the city or the backcountry. Knowledge is far more useful than gear, and while it can be hard to justify spending money on training when you don't have goods, it's a better long-term investment, as long as you put what you've learned to use. For a lot of folks, myself especially, the idea of buying stuff you might need and may never use for something that might or might not happen that has never happened in your life seems super wasteful in the peak of capitalist decadence. I get it. When you're living paycheck to paycheck, doling out $100 on canned corn seems insane. Buying a $20 water filtration straw when you have a sink seems wasteful when you've got student loans coming out of your ass. 
part of why I recommend using the equipment you buy is not just so you've experienced how to use it in those scenarios, but so that it doesn't feel like some futile exercise in spending money on stuff you never needed before. As I write this, Hurricane Laura is at the coast doorstep and I can only think of the millions of questions running through folks' heads as they try to find safe space to wait out the storm. If you're in zones like this, which, with global warming, will be most places, it's important to start thinking about routes, both traditional, like highways, and non-traditional, like biking paths, side roads, and so on, that allow you to maneuver in and out of high-risk regions. And really, we all should be spending more time outside and in the untamed parts of nature. Being part of nature and remembering our place within it makes us both healthier mentally and more comfortable in that space, should we need to be in an emergency situation. In all reality, if you're planning for a food shortage of three months, something really bad has happened. At which point, we should be planning with our neighbors how to defend our communities and build sustainable systems instead of relying on prepackaged goods. That said, we don't know what could happen. It could be a slow decay where food is scarce, but intermittently available. The large question that looms over most preppers is when to start using their reserves. When COVID struck, across most of the online forums, the question was raised of whether or not it was time to dig into their preps. Was this it? The moment they had been fearing? Psychologically, the question is loaded, and folks are usually hesitant to actually use their preps. Again, this brings back the idea of being comfortable with these goods, incorporating them into your life so when the time comes, you're ready for it without it becoming some huge psychological moment. And lastly, this brings me to the most underrepresented portion of prepping, psychological self-care and community care. For some, not all, folks that are into prepping, there's a psychological element to it, which might stem from feeling out of control of their other parts of their lives. They can control this. They can quite literally buy themselves a sense of stability. We can logically argue very reasonable for and against prepping, although I think almost everyone would agree that it makes sense to have an emergency supply of basic goods, batteries, water, candles, in the event of a storm or something like that. The idea that we may need to be prepared for anything more than that comes with major psychological implications in that we are acknowledging the world we live in is fallible, that our economic and cultural foundation is not permanent. For most folks, this idea is frightening, and their response is to ignore the fissures in the foundation as just the markers of settling, while some of us realize the walls are starting to look less like the aged foundation of a sturdy building and more like the last strain of mortar in a domino effect that doesn't end well. And I'm not trying to make the case here that if people don't see the beginnings of systemic collapse that they're afraid, or that they're ignorant, or whatever. I mean, we could be wrong. And I'm including you in this now, because you've listened for this long, and haven't stopped. So you must also think there's something to this. To see where our trajectory is headed is to be either nihilist or stupidly hopeful, or so obsessed with our importance that the idea that we should live to witness the downfall of the most powerful country on Earth's history is more likely than the system figuring itself out. I don't have an answer for any of this. 
The point is, for many folks on both sides of the aisle, there is a massive amount of psychological trauma that goes into our ability or inability to see what's happening around the world and think or not think that things are going to be okay. It's like a global Rorschach test, but some of us are going to be right. All we can do is be there for each other and not tear each other down for having a difference of opinion on how and if it all goes down. Mental health is just as important as any other facet of our health, especially in these critical times. This is why, again, make your bug out bag and go outside. Go hiking, fishing, whatever. Nature is crucial for your mental health, and building those habits of spending time within nature is just as important for your ability to survive the challenges we face, especially in a situation where you're reaching into your preps. Additionally, you'll get some experience carrying your bug out bag, which is usually more heavy than people expect. Further, build relationships with your neighbors. There's no, and I cannot stress this enough, there are zero survivors who live a fulfilling life on their own, even if somehow they manage to do so. We have been and are always going to be a communal species, not just because we need nourishment of other people, but because we simply can't do everything ourselves. People specialize, and in this specialization, we are able to make systems more efficient, just like we had talked about in the first episode. We don't exist outside of nature's laws. In our current world of technology, building preps is easy, but building networks of community support is hard. To do it, you have to put yourself out there, and it's a challenge. COVID isn't making things easier either. We're hoping to set up some interviews in the following episode with folks who do community development to discuss what options are out there to build those networks, things from community gardens to direct localized democracy, which provide the nurturative framework needed to build neighborhood support systems with deep foundations. So I think at this point, we have covered most of the basics of traditional prepping skills. And I know if you've never prepped at all before, it's all pretty overwhelming. Like everything, start small. Figure out an amount you're comfortable financially setting aside. It doesn't have to be all at once, but a little at a time. I want to do a quick budget example, and I swear it will be quick, to show you what you can do with limited resources. I did some online shopping with Amazon and Walmart to see what I could get with $150. So here's the list. I was able to get a handheld combo radio with the USB charger and solar panel for 20 bucks, a first aid kit for 10, a hundred count of 22 long range ammo for 10 bucks, a life straw for 20, and I spent $60 on 10 cans of pumpkin puree, two packages of vegetable bullion cubes, six four pound bags of rice, which I probably could have gotten cheaper if I got a bigger bulk, but when I started making out my recipes, that was the bag that I ended up using. Additionally, in that $60 was 12 cans of corn, 40 cans of black beans, 10 cans of diced tomatoes, and a bottle of Worcestershire sauce, which is enough to make 50 meals, 10 meals of pumpkin soup, 10 of black bean chili, and 30 rice and beans. I literally just googled can-only recipes and found a website that had a bunch of options, and I wanted to incorporate other foods other than what people commonly think of as prepper food. Even with only $150, 
we can be fairly well stocked without spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Hopefully, this was interesting enough for you to realize that prepping isn't about spending the most money or having the coolest gadgets. I don't have time for tactical bullshit, and I doubt you do either. We want to survive and thrive through whatever the coming years have to offer us. We've only scratched the surface here, and all of these components deserve their own mini-series, never mind episode. The plan is that someday we will cover these areas at length, but our hope was to get something in front of folks that would be helpful outside of the normal parameters we have been operating under for this show. The show's goal is to outline a new vision of what society can be and how we can transition from when collapse of some kind happens to that vision and what skills are needed to do that. This episode, by contrast, is very much framed in the traditional prepper mindset, and by no means is what was discussed here exclusive or exhaustive in any way. This is barely scratching the surface. Watching what's unfolding across the country between climate change, protests, the election, the the out-in-the-open collaborating between white supremacists and police, COVID, food shortages, as well as the lack of materials for canned food to get back on the shelves, all points to a very unstable fall and winter. I worry that what we have experienced so far in 2020 has been the easy part of the year. I even fear that 2021 makes 2020 seem like an easy year. While we are interested in the future when some of this has waned, this episode is focused on the now. As always, we hope you enjoyed the episode, and we thank you for making it this far in our journey. This is Andy, and this is the Horror Polls Almanac.